0: Welcome to Adversarial Learning. All right, we're recording. Um, so uh, my name is Andrew Musselman. I'm a host of Adversarial Learning, uh, the data science and machine learning podcast. Uh, and today we have a very special guest, Joel Gruse. Um He has a new edition of his book out, Data Science from Scratch with O'Reilly. And um, I was a tech reviewer actually back a few years ago on the first edition. And uh, Joel and I met after, uh, after his book came out. We, we, we chit chatted about the book at the time. Uh, but you know, I wanted to catch up with Joel, and uh, he reached out, and uh, and we talked about having him on the show. So, Joel, welcome. Uh, can you tell people about yourself? Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, glad to be here. So, I am a uh, what do
1: I call myself? A research engineer at the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence. Um, I work on a project called Allen NLP, which is a deep learning library for NLP researchers, and my job is to, uh, you know, maintain the library, add features to it. Uh, refactor it fix bugs train models stuff like that i've been at AI two for about three years uh, before that I was at Google for a couple of years doing uh, software engineering stuff before that I did data science at a bunch of startups around town uh, you know originally I studied math and economics so you know like everyone else i didn't know what to do with myself and got into data science and then not like everyone else, I kind of got out of data science
0: yeah well and you were um I was looking at your bio, and you have a pretty interesting background. Um, you, were, uh, you have a, a background in mathematics, and so I, I, I guess you know, the, the question always is, what do you do with a math degree, right? And it sounds like you've, you've done quite a few things.
1: Yeah, well, you know, it's funny. I was in math grad school a long time ago, uh, and at the time I dropped out, what did you do with a math degree? Uh, and a lot of people went into finance because, oh, finance always needs math people. And so I went into finance. And so that was my first, my first career was actually doing finance. And so that's where I got good at Excel and, um, I yeah, I'm mostly good at Excel. I and mean, it's also where I discovered I don't like finance.
0: Okay. Yeah. And, um, and you're, I've, I, I uh, actually found your Twitter account. I, uh, I, you have some pretty funny posts up there, I gotta say. Um, but it sounds, I, you know, I, I, I went pretty deep actually. I mean, Um, And so I I found some stuff. It it reminds me you you do you're a big fan of Excel. I I I can gather.
1: Um, So I actually am. I haven't used it in probably at least five years. Um, But before I wrote the data science book, I actually wrote uh, a book about Excel, which was a really good book about Excel. And uh, I couldn't get anyone to publish it, so I self published (laughs) it, and then no one bought it. And so then I just stuck it on the web for free. It's called Thinking Spreadsheet. So if you Google for Thinking Spreadsheet, you will find it, and it's all on the web for free. And at this point it's almost 10 years old, but I think it's really about it's so, and it's less about, you know, here's everything you can do in Excel and more about here's how you should think about spreadsheets as kind of a programming model. And here's how you should model your data in Excel. And here's the right ways to use spreadsheets. Here's the wrong ways to use spreadsheets. So I I think it actually holds up pretty well, even though it's almost 10 years old at this point.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting point of view. I think um, I've thought about spreadsheets a lot, uh, myself and, um, you know, they're, they're ubiquitous. They are installed on almost, you know, a a way to use them is installed on most any computer. Um, and you know, I've thought about, um, you know, a lot of the ways people are trying to update their, their toolboxes now. And it seems like a lot of things are, um, a way to sort of simplify the programming or the visualization stuff so that it almost replicates an Excel experience. Where you can, you know, you can just re- reference things by column, and you can see them in a table and things like that. So I, I think um, it may be an unpopular opinion, but uh, I, there's a lot, there's a lot going for them, you know, as a, as a, an environment.
1: Yeah, I, I kind of, I, I, I see them two ways. One, I, I think the reactive programming model, where you have all these cells that depend on each other, and you have this basically, uh, you know. DAG of computations I think is a really interesting programming model and a lot of the really bad spreadsheets are trying to fight against that model. Um, and if yeah. you go with that flow, uh, it works a lot better. At the same time, one of the deep challenges is that uh, pre- presentationally you don't have this uh, you know, clean sense of what's code and what's numbers because yeah. at some level it's all mixed together. And so I think that can make it a little bit challenging.
0: Yeah, I mean there, um... They, you know, they, they, they definitely have, have their use and I've seen them abused. I've, I've definitely seen some of the worst ways to use spreadsheets. I've saw a spreadsheet that cost, uh, three quarters of a million dollars one time. Um, that was a did big, I build it? Do you, I don't think so. It was, okay. uh, it was by, by one of the big, one of the big four or five, uh, management consulting firms. Um, I, I didn't build it, but it was, uh, it took somebody, uh, eight hours of their day every day to cut and paste data from different sources and paste it into this spreadsheet and hit go and then publish it out every day.
1: I, so was, I, I spent so much of my career working in Excel that even though I haven't touched it in five years, I bet if you asked me to do something in Excel, I could probably do it anyway. Yep. Yep. It's just burned in so deeply into my brain.
0: Cool. So that so you were, um, well, you know, I, I remember when we met, uh, we talked about your book, um, and you, you know, you, I remember you saying that you were really happy that you had written a book, but that writing the book was one of the worst things you'd ever tried to do. Uh, what on earth made you decide to write the same book twice?
1: Um, so what made me decide to write the same book twice? Um, let's get into what made me decide to write it once, and then maybe we'll, that will get sure. us to twice. Um, so in 2000, uh, let's say 2013, right? I was working as a data scientist at a startup. And when I looked on Twitter or when I saw the speaker roster for Strata, I saw that there are all these like famous data scientists out there, right? Um, you know, uh, do, do you know Josh Wills?
0: Yeah, I know him. Um, actually, yeah. he was on my podcast a while back,
1: yeah. Oh, that's sweet, I'll, I'll, I'll try and find that. Yeah, you um, check so, it out.
0: Maybe- <laughs> Subscribe and, and listen and like in the comments.
1: So, so, you know, there are all these people, Josh Wills, you know, Hillary Mason, DJ Patil that you would see on Twitter or wherever. And you're like, Oh, look at all these famous data scientists. I want to be a famous data scientist like that. And so I didn't know how to become a famous data scientist. So I don't know <laughs> how to be a famous anything, but I thought, you know, maybe if I write a book, then uh, I could become mm-hmm. a famous data scientist. And so I, you know, came up with this idea for a book uh, because I'm a math person. Math is really weird in that, everything has to build on other things from first principles. Uh, mm-hmm. Like when I was in grad school, I took this real analysis class um, and between the first and second quarter, the instructor changed. And so the instructor for the second quarter came in on the first day and he, he, he sort of looked at his notes and he said, Oh, I'm so glad that you guys learned so-and-so theorem last quarter, because that means I can use it in this class. Uh-huh. Yep. And, and, and so that's, that's kind of like, that's the math way of looking at the world. you, You proved this theorem last quarter, therefore, we're allowed to use it now. And if you hadn't proved it, then we wouldn't be. So anyway, um, when I sat down and think, what is the book I would like to write? I thought, um, you know, math grad school, for better or for worse, deeply kind of ingrained this approach to the world into me, where if you want to understand something, you need to build it up from first principles. And so that was kind of the approach i want to take with the book. You know, let's cover the fundamentals of Python. Now let's cover what does linear algebra look like now that we've built these tools. Let's build some gradient descent tools. Now let's build, you know, uh, linear regression. Now let's build and just everything builds on top. And, and so we're, we're basically, with, with a few exceptions, not using things that we didn't implement the building blocks for ourselves. So, yeah. you know, I wrote that book. Uh, it did okay. And that was great. And it came out in 2015. Uh, and it's done pretty well. But at the time I wrote it, I was still a Python 2.7 user. Oh. Uh-huh. And I hadn't really made the switch to Python 3. And then so it was just around came, the
0: time that, that that was becoming more imperative for people, right? Uh,
1: I wouldn't even say imperative. I would say it was around the time that data science people were starting to think about switching. Yeah, um, sure. I would say at the time I wrote it, probably most data scientists were still using 2.7. Yep. Um And then, about maybe six months after it came out, I personally switched to three <laughs> zero, um, not three zero. I think it was probably like three four or three three. Um, and then over time, I've gotten more and more into Python three, and I don't touch Python two anymore. Yep. And you know, Python two is almost at the end of its life, right? A- yeah. And so as time goes on and on, I started to feel guiltier and guiltier that there's this book out there with my name on it that tells people to use Python 2. I felt really bad about that. And so really like my number one overriding motivation for wanting to do a second edition was that I felt bad about myself that I had this book out there with my name on it saying use Python 2. I thought I need to get that book off the shelves. I mean, you can never get a book totally off the shelves, (laughs) but I don't want want a book out there being actively published with my name on it saying use Python 2.
0: Uh, because, It'll be on BitTorrent forever, but you know you'll have the new edition there too, right?
1: Right. That's fine. And so, like, if, if someone downloads it off BitTorrent, but they download the first edition, uh, I don't feel like they can complain to me. Hey, why did the first edition tell me to use 2.7 when no one uses 2.7 anymore? Like, well, because that's first edition. Read the second edition. Uh, yeah. So, 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 so then I don't feel so bad. Uh, I don't feel bad about it at all, actually. Uh, but, but I, I wanted. I wanted a, a Python 3 version of it out there, and I wanted the Python 2 version of it not out there. Um, because, you know, as an author, when someone says, how do I get started in data science, I want to tell them, hey, check out my book, right? My book is is what I would recommend. But if my book is telling you, uh, use Python 2.7, then, then I I feel bad about recommending it in some ways, right? It's a good book, but it's based on defunct technology, so don't do it. So, you know, I, I wrote to O'Reilly, and I said, I would like to do a Python 3 version of the book. And then, you know, once I'm in there, I might as well take the opportunity to clean up all the code, add new chapters, fix examples. And yeah, I went in thinking writing a second edition is going to be a lot less work than writing the first edition was. Yeah. And it was, but it was a lot more work than I expected.
0: Uh-huh. So did you, uh, you reworked all the code examples that gather and uh, did you add or subtract from, from chapters?
1: Um, I subtracted a little bit. Um, I reworked all the code examples in, in a few ways. One, um, and this will probably be one of the more controversial aspects in in Python 3.6, especially in later, there is this notion of type annotations, right? Mm -hmm. So when you feed a variable into a function, you annotate, here's what the type is. Um, And in my personal life and professional life, I'm a big proponent of these type annotations. I think they make code more readable. I think they make code more safer. Um, I think they help you design better APIs for what you're doing. Uh, And so I said, when I go to write this book, And especially a book where I'm using code to teach, I want to be as explicit as possible about these things. So, for instance, I'm teaching you what a dot product is, right? So, here we're going to write a function that computes a dot product. So, in the old world, you would say, you know, define dot of X and Y equals whatever. Uh, In the type annotation version, you say dot is a function. And it takes one parameter x, which is a vector, and yep. takes another parameter y, which is a vector, and it returns a float. So just by adding those annotations, um, you know, even if you don't care about the type safety or type checking, any of it, just reading that definition uh, fr- from a pedagogical point of view gives you so much more clarity into yep. what is this function doing.
0: Yeah, because otherwise you tra- have to dig through and, and see what, when, where that function is called and what it's being called with, and infer it.
1: Yeah. Or, or look at what it's doing. Right. But Mm -hmm. um, so so my view, and and we'll see how this resonates with people or whether it resonates with people or how they react. But my view is that by doing that, it actually makes it much easier to teach concepts using code because the code is much more explicit about, about many of these things. So I did that in almost the whole book, except for a few sections where it ended up being the types were kind of a mess. And so I, I, lost over it some.
0: I've not used the type annotation feature yet uh, but it it does sound good. Is that that something can you tell us more about that because I um, like how strict is it as far as type checking and can you get away with bending the rules at all or is it it's
1: it's interesting in that the type annotations don't do anything. So if you type annotate a function and you say this is a function that takes x which is an int and does something right and then you call that function on a string
0: It'll do it what it can? It will work. Okay.
1: Well, I mean, it it basically, at runtime, those type annotations don't do anything. Um, but there are external tools, the, the most popular one is called MyPy, that you can run against your code base that will kind of statically check your code for violations of those type contracts. It's sort of like running <laughs> PyLint against your code, except yep. that it's, instead of looking for, you know, pep eight things, it's saying, hey, you said that this function takes an int, but here you've added a string. Eh. Oh, cool,
0: okay. So it's but, still up to you to fix that and um, but it doesn't enforce it and you can still you could still write code that that sent the wrong thing. Exactly, exactly. yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, that seems like a nice um seems like a like a huge a huge improvement as far as uh, as far as maintainability. It's uh-huh. very
1: polarizing. Some people yeah. hate
0: it. Oh, really? What why They're, do they hate it so much?
1: Um two reasons, I think. One They appreciate the, so Python is a dynamic language, right? And so um, a lot of people like to use it in a dynamic way. So to them, if I have a function that can take, you know, an int or a string or whatever and do the right thing, like that's a virtue of the language, not a vice of the language. And so anything that makes it harder to do that um, is not good. Uh, The other reason is that, you know, it, it it makes your code a little bit more verbose to have to write out all these annotations. And some people don't like the way it reads. They think I, I would rather read, you know, clean Python without type annotations.
0: So, But it's only, it's only when you define a function or when you define a variable too? Uh,
1: for the most part, it will do type inference. So if you say like X equals one, you don't have to give it a type annotation because yeah. it's obvious that X is an int. Yeah. If you do something like X equals empty list, then you do have to give it a type annotation because it doesn't know, is it a list of ints, is it a list of floats, or whatever. So in cases like that where it really can't infer the types, you have to use it when defining variables, but most of the time you do not.
0: But it's a personal preference, right? So anybody who's against it just doesn't want it to be used in their code base or they don't even think it should be in the language.
1: Um, I don't think people take such a strong stand about what should and shouldn't be in the language. I, I think they would say, I don't, I don't want to use it in my code base and yeah. I would rather you not use it in our shared code base. That, okay. the, the product I work on at work actually has type annotations everywhere. And we have the MyPy type checking as a pre-commit check on, on GitHub. So you actually cannot merge code that does not type check.
0: Right. Well, you know what? We got to have rules somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, or not sure. Um, well, that's great. And so the book is out in print um, already and, and people are buying it. How are sales doing compared to the first one?
1: Um, I don't know. I, I don't. I don't pay attention to that kind of thing.
0: You don't have an alert. Like,
1: I don't. You know. So when the when the first edition of the book came out, I was like frantically refreshing Amazon and checking the sales yeah. rank and trying yeah. to like reverse engineer what that meant in terms of sales. And then as time went on, um, and I would read the reviews and oh, there's any review. What's it say? And over time, I I got very tired of that. Um, for whatever like there's a way that human brains work, or at least that my brain works, and let's say you get like 10 really good reviews and one like really bad review. Yeah. Then you walk away away and and like like the bad review is all you can remember.
0: Yep. So that's, yeah, that's, that's, uh, yeah. So it's like, they don't read the comments situation. I mean, if you, but I guess, um, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta take the, the feedback if, if, if it's valuable. Um, I don't know if bad reviews are ever valuable. I mean, Generally,
1: generally, all the reviews are valuable to um, people considering buying the book. Right, uh, they're less valuable to the author. It's yeah. like you know, I didn't like this because it didn't teach me X, Y, and Z, or I like this because Z. I needed to know something, and uh, you know. Or why like didn't it,
0: why didn't you use R?
1: You yeah, I mean,
0: you hopefully, people stuff? don't write
1: that reviews. Python is in the title of the book, so right. if you came in expecting an R book, then
0: it's on, that's on you.
1: But sometimes my wife will look at the reviews, and she'll be like, "Oh, you got a new review," and I'm like, "Don't tell me about it." Right. She's like, "No, you you want to hear this?" I'm like, "No, I don't want to hear it. Don't tell me about it."
0: <laughs> well, that's nice that she's sort of fending off the uh, and helping you helping you with that.
1: I guess I'd rather she didn't look at them either. Yeah. What if her body language gives it away or something?
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You have yeah, so uh,
1: so so you know it's out there, it's it's selling. Uh, I I don't know
0: how much. Um, did you do you have to do any um, uh, book signing events at uh, conferences?
1: That's a good question. My experience with the first edition was that um, the only book signing events I did at conferences were when I was already going to the conference anyway, and then I emailed O'Reilly and said, "Hey, I'm going to be here. Yep. Do you have an O'Reilly table? If so, I'll sign some books." Uh, but for tech books, at least for my tech book, they don't like send you a place to place on a book tour or anything. So, I'm doing a tutorial at the O'Reilly AI conference in September. Oh, very good. So, I think I imagine there'll probably be a book signing there.
0: Will you just uh, go out of the You know, out of one of the chapters of the book, or something, or what will you do?
1: No, it's actually an Allen and L P tutorial, so oh, cool. it, has, it has more to do with work stuff than yeah. book stuff. But yeah, so you know, in addition to revamping the code and updating it to Python three. I added a deep learning chapter. Um, oh, you have to. You have to, right? You have to. Um, yeah. I, I added uh, some deep learning related sections in the NLP chapter, you know, about word vectors and yep. RNNs and yep. g- generating funny stuff with RNNs. Like um, and and I had, and
0: writing that stuff from scratch, not just off the shelf library stuff. Exactly, yeah. Cool. Oh, awesome, okay.
1: The um, and then I, I added a data ethics chapter because again, that's kind of uh, timely. And yeah, uh, do you ever think about data ethics?
0: You know, actually, we've discussed it a lot on this podcast. You should, uh, you know, I don't want to tell you what to do, but you might want to go back and listen. We've, we've got some really interesting, uh, guests on here. I think we've had three or four sessions. Um, yeah, I mean, it's actually one of the one, something that's dear, near and dear to this podcast's heart. Um so yeah I mean there's there's a I would say that this podcast uh, view is uh, you know there's it's pretty complex um you know I I think um it, maybe we should have you again you know have you on the podcast again uh if you want to talk about it some more
1: Yeah I mean uh, I think that could be interesting uh you know the I, I, the take in the book is somewhat subtle in that um here are a lot of important questions to think about regarding data ethics yeah. uh and and you know here are a lot of things that ways in which data can be misused that you should think about um but at the same time at the end of the day ethics is a personal choice right yeah and i as a author of a technical book can't tell you uh here's what's ethical here's what's not ethical there's a sense in which that's between you and your conscience
0: well, I mean, I don't know if that, yeah, I mean, we've, we've talked about it a lot here and, um, some guests have had some pretty, really interesting viewpoints about, um, you know, the, where the, the, there is a, there is a general discussion of, of data ethics that's been happening. And, you know, the, the questions are, well, who's deciding, who's deciding what these, what these guidelines are? And, you know, how, how inclusive are, are these groups that are deciding it? And, you know, comparing these things to, medical certification and legal, you know, like the legal bar, um, you know, the code of ethics for, for lawyers is, is funny because there's about, you know, there's, there's dozens of, of standards for, for both those professions. So, um, yeah, I mean that I'm actually looking forward to reading that. So, um, I want to go out and buy the book. So I hope, I hope, uh, do, where's the best place to buy it?
1: Um, it's a great question. Cause you know, O'Reilly shut down their bookstore. Oh, they don't sell books directly anymore. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, and in fact, that was one of the changes I had to make for the, uh, when I wrote the first edition uh, in the web scraping chapter, I thought, oh, you know, this will be so cute and clever. My example will be scraping the O'Reilly.com oh, store. Shoot. And they can't object to that because, and, and you know, it's like a fun little shout out to them. And then uh, it turns out that you know, a couple of years after book came out they said oh, we're getting out of the book selling business we're shutting down the O'Reilly store
0: oh, well. so that okay.
1: actually totally broke the example in the book so That's funny. in the in the second edition I did change it to scraping uh, Congress
0: okay so
1: we'll, wow. we'll, we'll we'll see if they stay in business or not but
0: right, right. who knows it's anything possible
1: but mm-hmm. so you can buy it from Amazon yeah, um, I've heard if of you're now. someone who wants a PDF uh, apparently the authorized O'Reilly PDF seller now is ebooks.com. Okay. Awesome. Uh awesome. And I I'm sure you could get it at Barnes and Noble or whatever. What are other bookstores? Or a
0: bookstore in a couple of years so I can yeah it open. Did you Alden
1: Books, Which, e. Dalton's.
0: Okay. Did you also have um uh repo of, of the code examples for people to download?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So if you go to uh, github.com slash Joel grew slash data science dash from dash scratch, yep. um, all the code from the book is up there. Yeah. Um, it's a little bit, it's a little bit messy because, uh, it also contains all the code that generates the charts in the book. Oh, Okay. All right. All and right. I, I didn't cleanly separate that. So if you run it, it will like generate a bunch of charts and stuff, but.
0: Well, you know, that's a good g- question. Um, when you converted all your code to Python 3, was that something you were able to do in a systematic way, or was it sort of a case-by-case example? I think that's something that people are wondering about, you know, how, how much of an effort it is to upgrade all their, their work. Is it something that you can script out, or is it something you really have to pour over by hand?
1: Yeah, so actually a couple years ago, people asked me if I could, without updating the book, just update the code for Python yeah. 3. And so I did that. It took me about. There's not. I mean, think about how much code is in a book, right? Yep. I'd say it took me about four to five hours to do, yep. and that's with me being pretty intimately familiar with the code. Um, so it was. It was a little bit of a struggle. Um, the the hardest part. So some parts are obvious, right? I added parentheses to the print statements. Yeah, yeah. That's that's easy. You can you can do that with, um, whatever. Well, there's the things like
0: module imports at this point, too, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, so a lot. What I should have done, uh, you know, in retrospect, I don't think writing the book in Python, the first edition in Python 3 was ever, like, reasonable. Yeah. But I could have written it in a way that the code was compatible with Python yeah, 3. Future, future and I, yeah. I, Yeah. I could have future proofed it a lot better, I think. Okay. Which, which I feel bad about not doing. But, um, the, the most subtle... So there were, there were two changes that really got me. Um, one is that in Python 3, you can't do argument unpacking in lambdas. And what I mean is... Um, you know, if I... have a lambda that takes as, as input a, a tuple and I want to just subtract off... I just want to get the second one. I can't do like lambda parentheses x comma y and parentheses y... Um, and so that code all broke. Um, the second one, which was the really more insidious one, is that a lot of things from Python 2 to Python 3 changed from lists to iterators. So like yeah. zip yeah. was a list and was an iterator. And so there was uh, there was a lot of code where I would zip something and then iterate over the zipped thing multiple times. Yeah. And so then when you run that in Python 3 um, or map and... Map also the same way. Like, basically, uh, uh, if you use the map function in Python 2, like map, you know, lambda x, x plus one over some list, you get a list back. If you use it in Python 3, that exact same code, you get back an iterator. Uh-huh. And an iterator in Python can only be iterated over once. You can't and so reset. what would it. Hap- you can't. You have uh-huh. to generate it again. And, and, and so what happened is I would have this code that would, you know, map over a list and then iterate over the result multiple times. Right. In Python 2, that's fine because the result is a list you can iterate it over as many times as you want to. In Python 3, the first time you iterate over it, it's correct. And then yeah. the second time you iterate over it, it's it's empty. What'd you and, do to and, fix that? Well I I mean to fix it is easy. You just wrap it or you just wrap list around it or put it in a list comprehension and then you make force it to be a list. The problem the reason why it's a hard error is that it doesn't cause your program to to crash because it necessarily you're not doing anything invalid. It's just that suddenly you have a place where a list that was not empty before is suddenly empty. And so everything stops working correctly. Yeah, but, yeah, you're not, yeah. but you're not getting an error um,
0: so it necessarily. not just bomb and, out because there's nothing to iterate over. Yep.
1: Yeah. And so basically, you know, I have this code and it runs, but it's doing the wrong thing. Oh, gosh. Okay. Well, that's, that's one of the hardest things to debug yeah. if the code runs properly, but it's doing the wrong thing. So yeah. that was... That was the hardest thing to fix. Huh. And it wasn't that it was hard to fix. It was, it was hard to find all of
0: them. Right. Oh, okay. Right, because it's not all the same pattern.
1: Right. Exactly. And so it's not the same pattern, and you know, it's not giving me errors. Um, and so in the second edition, I actually, one thing, one other big change that I made was I added an emphasis on testing code throughout the book. We wrote yeah. some code, now let's test it. Yeah. And I put all those tests in with the... Uh, you know, reboot and GitHub. Uh So now uh, if the code breaks, I have a, a shit ton of assert statements there that will show me exactly what's going wrong.
0: Well, that sounds like progress. Cool. Yeah. yeah I, you know, I was looking at your, um, your LinkedIn page too, uh, just, you know, reading up and preparing for this session. And uh, I saw your slides on reproducibility and that, that looks like a really, really great talk.
1: Yeah. So that's, uh, that's one of these, a garden of forking paths, things almost where um, so so a a couple of years ago um, I was helping one of my coworkers. So when I started at AI2, uh, it was very much a Scala shop and most things were done in Scala. Uh And then, you know, after I'd been there for a year, suddenly everyone said, oh, we should be doing a lot more deep learning. And for doing deep learning, uh, everything is Python mostly. And so there was this big wholesale shift from people who had been doing Scala for years to doing Python. Yeah. Um, and so that was a good change for me because I'm a Python guy. Yeah. And so the puck came right to me. How, how some, was it?
0: How hard was it for all the researchers to switch over?
1: Um, I, it wasn't difficult, but I ended up, you know, helping a bunch of people. And, and so I had a coworker, uh, you know, a, a relatively senior engineer, but who had never used Python. Um, and so she came to me and she's like, I'm really stuck. I like my code's not working. I don't understand what I did wrong. Um, and it turns out she hadn't done anything wrong except that she was working in a Jupyter notebook and she'd gotten the state all messed up by running cells out of order. Yeah. And so then
0: that's why I hate notebooks, by the way.
1: Right, right. Good. Then uh, you, you'll like where this is going. Okay. Um. So, uh, and so I asked her, why did you use a notebook? She's like, I don't know. People said, Notebooks are the way to do Python. So, uh, <laughs> but like her confusion was literally 100 percent caused by her d- using a notebook. Yeah. If she'd done the same thing in a Repl, she would have had no problems yep. and not gotten confused at all. Yep. So I was angry and, and I made this tweet: like, if anyone wants me to give a talk on why notebooks are bad, like, please let me know because I would love an excuse to write the talk. Great. And then, whatever reason the people at JupyterCon saw the tweet, and they're like, uh, we won't promise to accept it, but you should submit. <laughs> Great. So I'm like, okay, so you know, I, I submitted and they accepted it, and then I was like, uh oh, you know, like I don't really have any. Like, like it wasn't a well thought thought out position on my part. I was just angry when they made a tweet. So I was like, now I gotta like sit down and figure out why I don't like notebooks. Oh
0: yeah, so, well, That's good exercise. Right. All you have to do to figure that out is is try to use notebooks for anything real, honestly.
1: Well, but uh, I uh, so that will help you. So there's a difference between like having complaints and being able to like frame them well and offer kind of constructive suggestions about, oh, what to yeah, about them. Oh, yeah, that's different.
0: That's not wasn't that uh, what I was intending to do.
1: Right, right. But I figured if I was going to JupiterCon and giving a talk, that I I might I better have all my ducks in a row, okay. right? Because it's not it's not going to be a friendly audience, and I don't want to like make an ass of myself by going there and being like, hey, no bookstalker. And then right.
0: everything that you get up on stage and talk about, people say, well, you can just do this, you can just do that,
1: right? Um, yeah, exactly. So like I, one, so, so, so that's a really good point. One, I wanted to, you know, be thorough and sort of systematic in, in the issues I was bringing up. And two, I wanted to make sure that I wasn't like being stupid about them right. where it's like, you moron, you, that's because you clicked the wrong button. You're you absolute know?
0: absolutely Right. I gotcha. So,
1: so, so, so uh, yeah, i spent a lot of time on that talk. And so I gave the talk and, you know, I really, the talk had a lot of memes in it. Like a lot of memes. Every page was a meme. Lots of memes. And and, and so, uh, but despite that, I figured I would go to JupiterCon and I'd give the talk and uh, people there would get angry at me and then we'd all go home and forget about it. Yeah. Um, but then the slides had so many memes in them that they went kind of, uh, they went very viral on Twitter. Like so much so that that talk was probably eight months ago. But if you go and look at the slides on Google Slides right now, there's probably like 20 or 30 people looking at them.
0: Oh, that's you! That's you! This is the talk. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Wow. Okay. Yeah, that thing went bananas. Totally. Huh. And so I
1: go to like, uh, I go to academic AI conferences as a part of my job. So you know, Triple AI, I Clear, and if, even at these academic AI conferences, people come up to me and they're like, "I just want to say, I love the notebook stock," and it's, like, it's bizarre to me.
0: That's because academics love uh, love comedy and they love memes.
1: Could be so. Last summer, we had this uh, high school intern at AI2, uh-huh. and she came. She came to the practice talk uh, for this JupyterCon talk that I gave, and she came up to me afterwards and she said, "I, I just want to say, like, I've never met anyone older than twenty who's as good at memes as you are."
0: <laughs> oh man, that's high praise. I, like,
1: I know. I was like, really older than twenty?
0: Wow. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Don't trust anyone
0: over twenty. Yeah, I mean, why? Why go? Why go higher?
1: So so anyway um a couple things happened after that one is i started getting on this high horse about like why data scientists should care about software engineering best practices right um which again ties into this using type hints writing unit tests uh writing clean code things like Not that
0: using um
1: for instance and so i gave a talk about that at a conference last fall called the Southern Data Science Conference Yeah, it was in Orlando yeah. um and then uh, you know, Triple uh, AI, which is like this academic AI conference, was in January, and there was a workshop there on reproducible AI, and the organizers of the workshop asked me if I would come and give a talk on reproducibility and notebooks, because one of the slides in my notebooks talk was that notebooks don't lend themselves to you know, reproducibility for a variety of reasons. Well, so yeah, I mean, it's hard to
0: get them up and running if you have a different version of IPython oh. or Jupyter, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right?
1: Yeah, the... There's a lot there, but yeah. So you know, they invited me to come give a talk about that, and then on the grounds of that, I guess the, there was a reproducibility machine learning workshop at iClear, and they said, "Do you want to come give a talk about reproducibility?" And I really didn't want to give another talk about notebooks and reproducibility, so yes. I said, "Do I have to talk about notebooks?" They're like, "No, talk about whatever you want." Cool. So I said, "Okay, great." So so instead, I talked a little more about you know how we can use reproducibility as kind of a, a a carrot, if you're being charitable, or a Trojan horse, if you're not being charitable. Yeah, the Trojan it's horse sort of,
0: image is hilarious, by the way.
1: To to trick uh, researchers into adopting better software engineering practices.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, highly recommend it. I saw that. and it, it, The slides are really good. Um, so, I mean, I wish I could have seen the talk. Is there a recording of it anywhere, or is it going to be published?
1: Um, It was live-streamed, I think. So there might be a recording of it at some point, but I, I don't uh, – I haven't heard anything about it. So. Cool.
0: Any other talks coming up? You want to plug?
1: Um, so next week is the American Statistical Association uh symposium on data science and statistics. Wow. And I'm giving the banquet keynotes.
0: Holy smokes. Cool.
1: So that's going to be like a stand up comedy routine.
0: Uh-huh. Do you have a do you have a theme that you're gonna go for?
1: Um no, I mean just data science is the theme.
0: Are you gonna put that one Venn diagram up on the screen?
1: You know, they asked me if I was going to use slides. I don't think I'm going to use slides. I'm going to try and play it more like a straight stand-up comedy. Cool. But it's interesting. You know, usually when you do stand-up comedy, there's not a code of conduct. But at the conference, there's a code of conduct. So uh, I need to
0: you could always be just
1: careful speak. about what I say.
0: <laughs> you can take a portable record player up on stage and just put a, put a record on. I could do that. The... Um, well, I'll... Uh, uh, not just talks, but any other plans for writing books? Any anything bu- bubbling up?
1: No, in fact, I've been extremely, extremely overcommitted for probably I'd say the past year. Ever since I agreed to, um, not agreed, ever since I proposed to do the second edition of the book. Yeah. So I've already, um, I've already given two conference talks this year. I think two. And then I've gone on a couple of other uh, – I've been, I've been strict, very busy with writing talks in the book. So once this uh, data science symposium thing is over, um, then my plate is, like, clear until the AI conference in September. Yep. So I'm going to chill out.
0: Sounds like a good time to do it, spend time with the family, take some vacation.
1: I didn't say spend time with the family.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you spend time with my family <laughs> I said,
1: instead. I said, I said chill out. <laughs> yeah. Exactly.
0: Come spend time with my family, get all get all anxious and paranoid and nervous.
1: Yeah, no, we are we are we're going to go on a cruise this summer.
0: Oh wow, where to? Alaska. Oh, that's awesome. I heard that they are. Uh, you're local to Seattle, right? You're. Uh, you're. Yep. Yeah. The uh, I heard that there is a ferry service up to Alaska that's going to be shut down soon. So maybe you're taking that cruise at a good time. I don't know if that's the same line or not.
1: I don't know. This is not a ferry service. This is like a cruise. Cruise. Cruise ship cruise,
0: like one of the big ones.
1: Yeah, one of the big ones. So we we, we went on one last year. We did a Caribbean cruise, and so my uh, eight year old she really liked it, and she's she's been clamoring ever since to go on a cruise again, <laughs> and, uh, and and so I've I've been reluctant to give in because one cruises are super expensive. Yep. Um, and two, I'm convinced she denies this, but I'm convinced that what she really liked is that they had a buffet. Oh. <laughs> And I'm like, am I really going to pay you know thousands of dollars that you can eat in a buffet every day for a week? I was like, I'll I'll take you to freaking old country buffet, and like you can knock yourself out. She's like, no, yeah. I liked other stuff too. I'm like, well, you don't like the kids club because you cried every time I tried to leave you there. She's wow. like, yeah, that's true. I'm like, you don't like the pool because you cried when I tried to make you go in the pool. She's like, yeah, that's true too. And I'm like, well, you didn't like uh, like what did you like? She's like, I liked the buffet. Like, yeah,
0: yeah, well. <laughs> That's funny. My grandparents, my uh, my kids' grandparents are talking about taking the kids on a Disney cruise soon. So um, I hear I hear good things about those Disney cruises. Kind of the best of both worlds, worlds nice. for me. I don't have to go, and uh, they get to spend time with them, and they have to have a good time.
1: Honestly, the cruise was kind of fun. So I did. I didn't mind it. the The part I minded was that it left from Miami, so we had to like fly all the way to Miami, it's a long and life. then and then get on a cruise, and then come back and fly back. So the last one leaves from Seattle, so that we can just like take a Uber or something yep. or even leave, leave my car there yep. and I hope it doesn't get prowled. So th- that, that aspect of it is, is pretty nice. Um, and, yeah, it's, it'll be good.
0: Cool. Well, you know, there's, uh, as far as local events, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm key planner for the uh, Seattle data science happy hours. I don't know if you've been to those, but um, you know, next time we have one, I'll definitely invite you.
1: Yeah. How often do you do those?
0: You know, once every two or three years, uh, at, at least, <laughs> you know, as often as we can get more than three people's schedules to align usually.
1: Yeah. Maybe you need to do a better uh, sales job.
0: Uh, yeah. I mean, like maybe I shouldn't be the one organizing.
1: So uh, what's it, what's it like having a podcast?
0: It's, you know, it's really fun. Um, I get an episode out every, you know, every six months or so. Um, I offshore the editing, um, So I have somebody in, um, in DC that does my editing for me. Uh, but you know, it's really, um, it's been great. I've had all the famous data scientists on the show. I mean, now I've had you, I had Josh Wills, I had, uh, Tim Hopper, um, had him. Who's the the
1: most, who's the most famous data scientist you had on your show?
0: Probably you, maybe you or Josh. Uh, Tim is the tallest one. Um. I think
1: Josh is probably more famous than me, so it's not me. It's got to be him.
0: You know, I don't know. It's 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 a spectrum, right? It's like a multidimensional thing. You're not just famous for one thing. There's lots of things to be famous for. Now, I mean, one good thing now is that you can chalk this up you've been on this podcast. So that's that's going to real be a real boost, I think.
1: I'm going to go home and add it to my resume. Yep.
0: <laughs> I will, you know, well maybe we can connect and I'll I'll endorse you for being on my podcast.
1: So that sounds great. What, yeah, so should. what's your what's your story?
0: Oh, you know, I I had a similar uh, similar approach to being a data scientist when I when I started doing data science. It was um, building a recommender for uh, for Rhapsody, the streaming music company, um, and I, I built an album recommender that that per- outperformed uh, the editorial choices by you know some ungodly fifty percent or something. And and you know, along the way, realized that my calculations were taking too long, and so. Looked into tools and learned about uh, you know some distributed frameworks and and all you have to do is be able to write a MapReduce job and you're a data scientist at that time. So that's that's how what, I. Got.
1: What's the uh, what's the best music you discovered through your recommender
0: system that you never Ooh, would have discovered that's a otherwise? Yeah, um, I don't know if I would say I discovered music that way, but I did discover some fun stuff. You know, Coldplay is basically the most highly connected band to any other band or, or artist, uh, any, everybody likes Coldplay to, to the highest. I don't like Coldplay. I'm not a big fan, but, uh, I discovered that, you know, it's like part of the science part, you know, is making discoveries. Right. Um,
1: the thing I would say about Coldplay is that they're on the better end of the spectrum of music that gets played at my dentist. Yeah. So like <laughs> the dentist plays a lot of bad music. So like Coldplay is actually pretty good for dentist music. But in most other circumstances, I I, I probably wouldn't listen.
0: Yeah, to Yeah, I mean maybe maybe that metric is more just they're inoffensive. You know, they they are they fit in in a lot of a lot of situations.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of the dentist music it's like Maroon Five. That's another
0: yeah yeah yeah. I uh, that was fun, and then you know just moved on and um, did more. You know, got into some consulting and working in so-called big data, and so. We're then working in so-called data science and so-called machine learning and now so-called in artificial intelligence. So I'd say the last 10 years have just been sort of, you know, riding the crest of, uh, five or so different hype cycles. Um, so you ever think about writing a book? I have actually funny you mentioned it. I have a, I had a contract. I probably, I don't know if I still do with O'Reilly, uh, your publisher. Um, I have all the notes. I have an outline. I just have all, it's a simple matter of writing some words down. And I'm done, you know. What's the book? So close. Uh, it was real world data science with Python. So very, it would be a good companion book to yours, I think. Um, yeah. if someone would write it, you know? Um, and it's funny. I think it's been four years that I had the contract and I, it's still not out. It's not written. Um, but I think it's still, it would be useful. And, uh, I think about it. It, it flits across my attention span. Uh, yeah, probably a few times a month.
1: Most likely your editor left the left the company and that fell through the cracks.
0: Well, my editors left the company like three or four times while I was even, you know, getting approval. The company I worked at it took 3 months of arguing with lawyers about um which which paper they wanted to sign. So or they wanted me to sign. So it was it was a struggle from the beginning, but um you know, a lot of like things that are worth doing our struggle. So I never lose hope, right? Yeah. <laughs> Well, good. Yeah, I think um, you know. I, I really would like to have you back on the podcast sometime. Um, you know, if you wanted to come back and talk about data data ethics or um, you know anything else you want to talk about, let's 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 do that. I'm sure um, we'll get a clamoring from our listeners about it. So look forward. to it. All that. right, that sounds great. Yeah, and thanks for coming on. I appreciate uh, your taking the time, and uh, it's been good to get to know you. Uh, and best of luck with the book sales, and uh, have fun at okay, your can, conference. Can,
1: can I can I pitch the book one last time? Yes. Okay, so the book is called "Data Science from Scratch," second edition, right. um, and it's available, you know, wherever books are sold, um, and probably some places where books aren't sold. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd, I'd be wary about getting it there, but you can get it there. Um, I have a blog at joelgrus.com. That's J O E L G R U S. Um, I update it about once a year, sort of like Andrew and his podcast. And the most recent post there is about uh, is about the second issue of the book, actually. Oh, cool. um, I, have a, I, I have a Twitter at uh, Joel Groose, which uh, Andrew mentioned, and you know I I actually tweet quite a lot. Um, I sometimes make these live coding videos. Uh, if you go to youtubecom Groose, you'll find them. You know, some of them are me trying to solve Advent of Code problems. Some of them are deep learning, live coding. Um,
0: I watched a couple of those. Those were very good. They were really fun to watch.
1: Yeah. That when it goes well, they're fun to watch. Right? And when it goes poorly, it's me staring at the computer and swearing for an hour.
0: <laughs> do you record them on Twitch or how do you do it?
1: Um, I record them on YouTube. Yep. Actually last year I recorded them, uh, just locally.
0: Oh, really? And, like on the screen and then I uploaded and them screen?
1: on YouTube yeah this year I live stream them on YouTube. Someone was telling me I should do Twitch. I need to look into it because you can't stream to both Twitch and YouTube at the same time because it takes too much CPU or oh, something. Okay. Uh, so anyway, um, mostly I, I don't think not very many people watch them live anyway. Although, um, someone was telling me the other day that, you know, there are these live streaming coders who get like hundreds of thousands of subscribers. So maybe that's something that I can invest in once, uh, once the weight lifts off my shoulders yeah
0: yeah well enjoy the time off um yeah i mean we're both in seattle so you're probably seeing the same thing i am it's it's definitely getting getting nice out
1: oh it's a beautiful day today the only thing is there's so much pollen there it looks like it's snowing
0: (laughs) yeah my the back door sill of my house has like this yellow caked uh layer right now
1: yeah, we we have actually I don't know what it's called, but these are like white and fluffy pollens.
0: Oh, like a yeah, like a uh, cottonwood or something like that.
1: Something like that, yeah. Anyway, it's a, it really does look like snow. It's not the yellow pollen; it's the <laughs> white pollen. Anyway, yeah, we should we should try and uh, meet up sometime. That would be interesting.
0: That'd be fun. Yeah, um, yeah, and uh, well, thanks again for coming, and uh, I'll definitely put you on the list for the uh, for the biannual uh, data science happy hour.
1: All right. That sounds great. All
0: right. Well, thanks for coming. Talk to you soon.
1: All right. Take care.
0: Check out our site at adversariallearning.com. Find us on Twitter at adversarial underscore L, or email us adversarial.learning.podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.